Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. On today's podcast, we're joined by the Irish representative of a major American investment firm here in Ireland, Heinz, which has become one of the most significant investors in the Irish property market. Very involved in the commercial sector, such as shopping centres and major shopping investments on our main streets. Also involved in student accommodation as one of the biggest suppliers there. And in the commercial sector, it owns and is developing some of the biggest office blocks in Dublin. So many that we only managed to get an opportunity to talk about some of them in this podcast. But perhaps most interestingly, it is very involved in the building of houses and apartments. And as we know, that is the major issue for generations of Irish people at present. Where are they going to find places to live in the future that they can afford? Brian Moran, the Irishman behind it all, also is has a very interesting backstory about the time he spent working for Heinz in Russia during the 1990s, which we get to later in this interview. So I hope you enjoy this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, where we're joined by Brian Moran. So, Brian, we'll talk about Russia in a little while, your own personal experiences of having lived there during the 1990s and different era. But I want to start by talking to you about the extent of Heinz investment and involvement in Ireland, because I was trying to do a quick check through all the things that I think you're involved in. Cherrywood, which is a major development on the south side of Dublin, you're the lead developer there, and although there are others involved as well. Uh, you've also got major housing developments planned for near Croke Park and Clonliffe Road and on the South Circular Road, the John Player site. But as well as housing, you are into commercial development and the central bank in Dublin, possibly the most obvious one of those. You're into student accommodation and you also, I think it's manage retail outlets rather than owning the Liffey Valley Shopping Centre. You're the manager of that. Right. How, how much of the list have I got there? Uh, so far, so good. Uh, and we have a, a large enough portfolio in and around Grafton Street as well that People will be familiar with the Chatham and King properties there, the Zara store, uh, those properties as well. So we own and probably about half a dozen properties on in and around Grafton Street as well on top of that. So you're allowed to say, how much is your investment in Ireland worth for Heinz? The, the aggregate portfolio uh, is valued in excess of three billion. OK. And how long has Heinz been active in Ireland? So we started in about 2011 I had worked with Heinz, as you mentioned, uh, well, in, in Russia way back when in the 90s, uh, come back here to Ireland and had my own business. And that obviously slowly wound down as the great financial crash uh, took, took place. Post that, I was looking to start again, really, and, and recognize that you know, Ireland needed a massive recapitalization of the real estate industry. So we're speaking to a number of friends and former colleagues in, in, based in London, including Heinz, uh, and about the idea. And, and Heinz rocked up and said, look, we would love to do this. Uh, we see Ireland as being a, a fantastic growing country, particularly recognizing the level of US FDI in the country. And so it was a good opportunity to, to build uh, a, a long-term presence. And obviously, they knew me from my time working with them back in Russia. So that was the start of it. We started off initially for six months to see, look, let's see what might opportunities might arise and then rolling on from that bit by bit we, we start to build the portfolio 
So you saw land and property being undervalued at that stage, was it? Well, it, it, I, I suppose if, in theory, post the crash, after NAMA had come into the market, it was from any uh, and any metric, its intrinsic value was was lost. It was below its its long term value, and that was due to lack of finance, lack of liquidity. Uh, you know, the market wasn't able to to fund it. But indeed, that was the opportunity, the recapitalization of the real estate industry here. Um, many of the banks, including NAMA, you know, had taken over the properties because the equity was wiped. New equity was needed uh, to right size the debt and allow uh, the banks to restart, you know, reset their balance sheets. And indeed, NAMA, as, as you know, played a huge part of that. So the opportunity was to bring new capital to, to the marketplace, but also to build uh, the property that we need and still need, uh, even more so today, uh, to, to deal with the growing population and the growing economy that we have. Of course, to your critics, that means you're a vulture, that you swept in on the carcass of the Irish property sector and are picking the best bits of it. I, I think that's very unfair, uh, being honest with you. I, I think clearly at the time, uh, we naturally were, were buying assets, but we're buying them from not necessarily in distressed auctions or anything of that nature. So we were not buying distressed debt or in that type of situation. We were looking at longer term assets where people wanted to transfer ownership. So, for example, Liffey Valley, which was one of the first deals we did, a long term owner there, Aviva, wanted to exit and had been trying to exit for a long time. And we acquired their interest in Liffey Valley. And that was our first big, big deal here. Uh, so I wouldn't describe ourselves as vultures. Uh, the other thing as well that would you know would definitely not classify us is that we're here to build. So something like Cherrywood, which where, where yes we did buy the land from the receivership, but that was one where you know there were three banks they needed, to, including NAMA, that needed to exit, and they needed somebody to step in and and take a, a long term view about the big investments needed to make that property work. Uh, if we were a vulture fund, we wouldn't have done that. We would have you, you wouldn't want to pick up a complex asset that was going to take many additional hundreds of millions to actually uh, make work before you'd see any revenues coming out from it. So, no, we took a long-term view. We have to buy uh, an asset that is, has been in receivership for seven years, has many distressed elements to it, and we're going to have to invest significantly to get it to a point where we can start to build, and that's what we did in Cherrywood. So I think it's unfair. Yes, we came in at a time that, I guess, vultures might have come in at the same time, but we weren't in that space. We were taking a longer-term view. Well, there's so many things we can talk about. Actually, we'll get to the housing in a little while, but I suppose that's the big pressing social issue. But I briefly want to ask you about retail, because you sold Liffey Valley, didn't you, to an investor and now manage it on their behalf. So you made a profit on that. But what is the future for our shopping centres and also for the other retail that you have in Dublin, particularly in the post-COVID environment? Well, look, I think the story of retail in today's world with e-commerce, TikTok, uh, you know, the influencers, is, is the jury's still out. And I think you can see that uh, where Amazon, as you know, in the US announced recently, we don't need 10% of the space we've just taken on in, in logistics. So I think everybody is experimenting to see what the new new normal is in retail. So how does a, uh, you know, how does a brand become relevant to consumers? Uh, what sort of presence do you have to have online and in-store? Can you be purely online? Do you need to be in-store? How, do, how does it complement uh, your, your brand proposition or indeed your sales to, to do both? Uh, the whole supply chain of logistics, do you need distribution centers? Do you need fulfillment centers? Or can you all do it from in-store? Uh, all, in my experience, uh, watching retailers, they're all, all experimenting with this. Um, 
they're not necessarily going to tell us as a landlord exactly what they're up to, but we watch it and we observe different models being tested out all the time. Without a doubt, though, what I'm seeing is the most successful retailers are the ones that are, are the omni-channel ones, the ones that are, have a strong online presence, have a strong brand proposition, going through all the most up-to-date social media channels, combined with a fantastic in-store presence. Now, maybe not as many stores as they had in the past, but larger experiential stores located in the prime high street or the prime shopping center, where they know their customer can, you know, who might experience them online, can go touch and feel and then go home and later on that day they'll buy. And maybe the fulfillment is coming from a, a last mile distribution place out on the Nace Road or else, as we're seeing more and more, it's being fulfilled from the back of house within the store. So that, that uh, you know, and we're seeing also a push to net carbon footprints. So they're trying to say, well, like, we need to be closer to the customer for that last mile delivery. So we want an electric vehicle that runs out the, the back of our store to their home in that district. So there's a huge amount of experimentation by retailers to get that work to work. Uh, you know, one other observation about retail just to make is that, you know, what I call the push and pull models. You know, previously, one would have seen, you know, uh, manufacturers, fashion brand, everybody, shoemakers had a push model where they made this season's batch of products or shoes or jackets and they pushed it out into the stores into the department stores the, the, the stores they had on high streets and they waited for the customer to come and buy it that's changing now it's a pull model now there isn't as much inventory in the in the stores anymore what happens is the customer decides what they want and they start buying online and in the store and then once the retailers see what's happening then they ma- manufacture more of it at that point in time and start to it's, it's, it's pulled through the channel rather than pushed and left there to, to sit. And that's where you're seeing the more successful retailers like Zara, um, who basically are, are waiting to see, and indeed pennies, are waiting to see what is demanded by the customer and then start to allow that to be pulled through the channel. But where does that then leave the landlord, the shopping centre owner? I mean, does that mean you're going to have vacant units, which when the more, as soon as you start having vacant units in a shopping centre, it becomes less attractive as a destination for people to visit? Yeah, it's a big, you're absolutely, it's a change in mentality for landlords. I think the traditional old landlord would have signed a 20-year lease with a, a, you know, a, a well-known brand and sat back and all they had to do was collect the rent. There was not much more to it. Landlords now have to become very, very proactive in asset management, understanding what the trends are, who are the best retailers, what's the mix of retailers we have to have in a, in, in a shopping centre or on a high street to make it work. Uh, we've got to listen to the retailers. Like, for example, out in Liffey Valley, quite a few of them have said, we need more storage space because of that online fulfilment. The good thing about Liffey Valley, actually, it's not the best piece of architecture in the world, but actually, because it is a single story on a large piece of land, we can break out the back and we can, and we can go up and we are able to add that additional fulfillment of space to the store without any disruption to the... So you're actually spending money to make Liffey Valley bigger? Correct. So we, we've invested in the last three years, probably about 60 million additional capital into the store to hold its position and allow the retailers to become you know, even better within the store within the, the mall. And then what about city centre locations? Because you mentioned around the Grafton Street area. You know, how concerning is it to you to see a footfall down on Grafton Street and it doesn't seem to be returning to the levels that it was pre-pandemic? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I, it's an interesting one. First of all, if you take Liffey Valley, we're, we're, we monitored the footfall out there uh, and we are now consistently 
you know, five to 10% ahead of where we were uh, back in 2000, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Um, whereas the city centre, again, we don't do the counts there, but we understand that, you know, the footfall is 20% below where, it's, where it was then. However, where we do have stores in the city centre and we have turnover data, so the number of the stores, uh, and again, that's how we often split the risk with the retailer. We'll do a base rent and a turnover top-up, so that, you know, that manages the the risk proposition between both of us. Uh, the turnovers are significantly higher, and I'm talking 20% plus above where they were in 2000 and beginning of 2020. Now, I sense that's a part post-COVID liquidity. People have more money to spend, but also look at the job numbers. Look at the income tax numbers, the, you know, the exchequer numbers that came out in the last 48 hours. They're quite strong. So, Clearly, there's a lot of money in the economy, and therefore the basket spend, which is the amount of people are spending in the shop, uh, is quite high. So the retailers are doing, in, in good locations, are doing quite well at the moment. And then let's talk about commercial property, because it is related that uh, a lot of offices haven't returned to full five-day working, everyone back in, and that's having its knock-on impact on shops and restaurants and cafes in city centre and town centre locations. I mentioned you have a major redevelopment going on in the central bank. I forgot to mention the one that you have at Charlemagne Street as well. There's an enormous site there just by the Lewis, and which is where the metro is due to uh, have its terminus as well. How concerned are you for commercial developments? There's an enormous amount of them have gone up in recent times. Are we seeing perhaps the end of the building of those? So the Dublin office market is is reasonably resilient. We haven't overbuilt, so we ne- we didn't have this cycle, you know, the massive credit boom that we would have had in previous cycles, where you would have seen significant overbuilding relative to you know underlying demand. Uh, in in many ways, if you look at the Statistics: the the absorb, or natural absorption uh, of office space based on the economic growth of Dublin has uh, has matched the the amount of building. So, in terms of buildings on site today, about sixty percent of them are pre-let, uh, even though they're not due for delivery until next year, or the year after. So, there's a lot of certainty there in the office market. But coming back to the future of the office, uh, there's two things. One is you're absolutely right. We have not seen the return to office uh, that might have been predicted or pe- that people might have expected. Uh, how much of that is, you know, and I would say it's not short term, it's medium term before that, that will, will change. And how much of that is permanent? I think there is an element of permanence to this hybrid model. I, I think it will, uh, you know, the, let's call it the three plus two or something like that is, is possibly will take root. Uh, on the other hand, um, I'm hearing significantly from, from uh, office occupiers that they really need to get people back to the office. So the whole mentoring of young staff, uh, which is required, the fact that older people within the office need to be there to uh, mentor younger people and the training that happens, the corporate culture, the serendipity ideas bouncing off people, just the, 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 what you might call the water cooler talks are not happening and they need to happen. And I think there's been an element of, look, let's not antagonize the workforce at this point in time. But bit by bit, I'm seeing creeping in a realisation from corporate organisations that we don't get uh, a lot of people back into the office. And by the way, not not every day, or let's allow for more flexibility than we might have had before, but it's a, a certain essential element of how companies work. I'm hearing that from a lot of businesses and I'm sympathetic to it, but I wonder how much of it is also motivated by the fact that they're paying for office space and they want to see people in it to use it. 
I, I, look, I, I think what's going to happen, uh, and by the way, this is based, I, I was on a call with some of Heinz colleagues in the US who uh, are, they would believe they're 60 to 90 days ahead of us in terms of you know what, where all this, the current dislocation in the market is going. But their view is they are definitely speaking to corporate tenants. And I think as leases come up for renewal or as people reevaluate their, their office stock, they will be more cautious in, in terms of the amount of space they'll take. I think two other elements that are important. One is that the space per person will increase. So, for example, previously we, you know, it was moving really down to almost battery hen type desks where people had four square meters per person. That's going to drift back up to eight you know, square meters per person just from a personal hygiene. People don't want to be crammed anymore. The second thing is we're seeing is that the experiential aspect of the office. So you've seen it in, the, you know, people have seen pictures of a Google office or so you've got the stairs that everybody sits on or the cafe bar. Those elements are becoming prerequisites in nearly all offices now. So there's an, an expectation that there will be couches, beanbags, you know, stairs, people where you can walk away from your desk go meet with other people, chat. So you actually encourage, you know, let's say less formal locations within the office to have after work drinks or talks or, you know, get people can break away. So you have a spatial requirement that's actually growing for the same amount of people. Uh, so I think you're going to see re-evaluations of portfolios. I think you're also going to see that, that what people might have written off WeWork, but I actually think WeWork is the strongest brand in this space in the world. But WeWork will continue to be a service provider to many big corporations for flex space. So previously, corporations might have taken on space to say, look, we'll have an extra 10, 15% headroom for projects or for expansions. Now people will say, well, actually, you know what? We don't need that because we can use a WeWork type solution if we need that extra space. Let's not enter a 10-year lease for it. Let's just pay the premium to WeWork if and when we need that to do that project or do that acquisition where we're going to need a project team to do it. Are WeWork still your biggest prospective tenant for the central bank? They, well, they are the tenant. They are the, uh, they are the main tenant for the, the, the floors, the, the main office floors. So they signed into a long-term lease there. I'm not going to go into the Charlemagne building because that might not be familiar to many people, but I think the central bank in Dame Street in Dublin, when I say the central bank, it's the old central bank because they're now down in the old Anglo-Irish bank headquarters down the Keys. But the old central bank is a sort of a strange story in some respects because it was a highly controversial building when it was constructed, I think in the 1960s. Yes. People decried it as being completely out of keeping with the surroundings on Dame Street. And now it's become a sort of an iconic treasure, Mm. which you actually had to restore. But tell us about the restoration of that and also how much longer it has actually taken than you might have anticipated. Well, I I think you've touched, you know, obviously I have a few more grey hairs now than when I started that project, that's for sure. It took a lot longer. Obviously, a couple of different things. One was COVID. We were shut down factory for six months. Uh, some of the tech, ne- technologies, the techniques in restoring were actually were very complex because, as you know, the, the buildings actually hung on, on metal bars from the roof. And all of those bars had to be restored. They had to be cleaned down, sanded down, and then put back together again bit by bit. But the, the, the building, as you say itself, our key key idea was to try and remove, if you remember, there were railings to the front of it that effectively consumed half the plaza area. I mean, that was supposed to be a public plaza, but the central bank, I suppose, naturally had to put up railings over time to, you know, create a sense of barrier or a sense of security there. But it had become the great skateboarding centre for Dublin youth. And, and, and also the goths, as you, you may recall, uh, 
In fact, when we were doing a presentation to the city council uh, at the very beginning to show the local councillors what the, the proposal was, one of them uh, chirped up, and you know, and what's in this for the Goths? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, look, no, the, the Goths are very welcome back uh, once once we reopen. So we'll see that in the next month or so, because it, it will. By the way, the plans will reopen in July. But the building was was very complex to restore. Took probably a year longer than than, than we expected. One of the big things we did, as you know, is that, uh, and one of the controversial things was the roof, because the, the structure is it, hung, and it was never anticipated that the roof would go so high. But that actually was the the, the, the bracing, if you want, the truss that had to uh, be put in place to allow the building to be hung. But that wasn't in the original planning application, the, the truss element. And therefore, that's why it would breach the heights, because the truss was built. Originally, it was left uncovered, because it wasn't supposed to be there, but they couldn't take it down, because it was holding the building up. And then eventually, Sam Stevens was given permission to uh, put it, uh, a copper roof, uh, uh, effectively, over the truss and, and cover it up. So our simple idea was to take the copper roof off and put a glass roof on. Uh, and then what was just a storage space in that roof uh, has now become, it will be a bar and restaurant. So it'll be available to for the public to access. And then the second idea we had to open it up was, rather than have two stairs going up to the front door, you only need, really need one stairs going up to the front door, drop the other stairs down to, the, to a, be, a lower basement area and open up the plaza, very much like the Hancock Tower in uh, Chicago, where you create this lower sunken plaza that's protected and you have a cafe and bar down there. But you also have the entrance to the high-speed lifts that take you directly up to the roof. So when you come to visit the building as a, as a, as for the offices, you go up the stairs. And if you come to visit the building to go to the roof, you go down the stairs into the entrance and up you go directly in two high-speed lifts. So it, I think when we're, we're, it's been you know, a long, long, hard journey to get that finished technically. And as we speak, we're doing the final, what's called BCAR, which is the Building Control Cert. And that should be finished by... Probably, I think, the 21st of July. And then we will, that will allow us to open up the plaza uh, and people will start to see you know, what's been finished. The fitting out of the building will probably go on till, till the end of the year. But effectively, it's finished at this stage. And I'm fascinated by your description of how the building is held together. I don't understand that. But you were originally an architect. Correct. So explain how a building can be held together from the top rather than built from the foundations up. Yeah, so people would traditionally think you, you have columns that start in the ground uh, and then you, you, they hold up the floor and that you build the next floor and they build the next floor. What Sam Stevenson conceived was you had these two central cores, so two central, if you want, concrete uh, elements that were thin and r- rose up to you know, the 14 stories effectively. And then at the top of those, you put a truss, uh, a metal uh, steel structure, and then you hung bars from that truss. At the, the, so they reached out to the edge of the building. And then the, those bars hung down and they held up the floors at the edges. So the floors are held at the edges of the building from steel bars. Uh, they're called McAloy bars, which is named after the Sheffield foundry where they're actually made. And then by the, the core in the center. So when you're on the office floors, there's no columns. Uh, they're just complete open plan space with these amazing views around the city. So it was very novel, uh, very complex to build. I don't think any commercial developer would have attempted this. Uh, it was it's a central bank, so they probably had... Uh, Unlimited pro- budget. Well, I, well, they certainly were yeah, more generous with the budget for the architect than, than would normally be the case. And, uh, you know, again, but it's created, uh, you know, a very iconic building uh, for the city. And what you said there is that the equivalent of 14 stories high. Correct. 
Because that's interesting, because that's the sort of height that people give out about as well as being untypical and unsuited to Dublin. Yeah, well, look, I mean, height obviously is, 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 there's a lot of perception in height. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, the Guinness Storehouse, you know, again, that's probably about 16, 17 stories, but people don't even notice it, and yet it's cheek by jowl with loads of two-story housing. So, you know, height is, there's, there's a lot of, concern about height about overshadowing overlooking but in reality once and this is my experience visiting many cities around the world and i think many people do when they go on holidays they wander into la defense or they wander into you know other parts of cities walk around think this is beautiful even though the buildings might be 15 20 stories but there's a a nervousness about uh, creating that sort of height in the city even though we have it in certain locations and people you know don't even notice it once it's actually there taking a lot of detours before we get to Cherrywood but given that you mentioned the Guinness Storehouse that's not far from one of the two major uh, buy-to-let apartment developments that you're doing in Dublin. One near Croke Park, Clonliffe Road, we'll get to that in a moment, but the other one is near the Guinness Storehouse, which mm-hmm. is up the old John Player cigarette factory site up on the South Circular Road. So where are you at now in relation to development of that? Have you actually started work on building there yet? No, unfortunately. Uh, so we've two sites there. One is the Bailey Gibson site and the, and the other one is the John, uh, the Player Wills site. So the two sites beside each other. And there's a third site, which was St. Teresa's Gardens, which is owned by the city council. So the three sites collectively are a regeneration area, about nine times the size of Crow Park, just to give you a sense of the scale of the land uh, holding up there. So there's three develop you know three planning applications you know moving along and you're responsible for two of them two of them and the land development agency uh, is responsible for the third one on behalf of the council so we've lodged applications for bailey gibson we've lodged applications for the player wills and both of them have been granted permits but in both cases they've been contested uh, in the courts there's a judicial review outstanding on both of those and in both cases uh, queries have been raised by the judiciary in relation to elements of incompatibility between Irish law and European law uh, on both of those issues. And in, in, in the case of uh, Bailey Gibson, that question was sent to Europe uh, maybe about a year ago now at this point in time. And the question of players will will be sent to Europe before the summer, we understand from the, the, the court, that the intention is they'll send a query to Europe for a decision which may take some time. Um, what we will do in, in any event is we'll probably lodge some more applications uh, over the course of the next year. So as people will be familiar, in Dublin, the development plan is going through a change at the moment. And once it's clear exactly what's in that new development plan, we'll put m- some more applications in. And basically, we'll see which application comes back in first. In the meantime, we can't start work. Uh, we're not in a position to start any work until we have a valid planning application that is bankable, so to speak. So we'll just have to wait and see. And how long are you in possession of that land at this stage? We bought that, it would be in the end of 1718. So, you know, it, it must be 
four years at this point in time. And how long when you bought it did you anticipate it would take uh, before you would be able to start building? Well, at that point in time, judicial reviews of planning application were very few and far between. There had to been, probably have been three in the previous 10 years. Right now, I think there's about 80 or 90 uh, outstanding. So anything that high density now is, you know, goes to the courts as a, almost as a matter of, of, of course. Um, which is something which I know the government and the planning authorities are trying to work around, that there's been a change, as you know, where it's gone back to first application to the council, then to the board, as opposed to straight to the board. But we had no choice but to go straight to the board. That was the, the system that was in place that we had to respond to. So um, we would have anticipated maybe 18 months of planning, and then we would have been on site. Uh, so we, we had a contractor lined up to go to start building, um, and we've had to stand them down and just leave them aside until we can get a valid permit. How many units are you looking to construct? And uh, tell us about the blocks and their size. So in the plannings that we've lodged, we, we, I'm sorry, we have a small third site, which we, we hadn't lodged, but, but it's, a, it's a smaller component of it. But overall, in the across the sites we have there, we have about 1,500 units. Uh, and the, the heights would range from three stories at the edge to an average, let's say, of six or seven stories, and then a number of buildings that will pop up uh, from 15, and, and in one case, to 19 stories right at the centre of the site. Why 19 stories? Why go so high? Well, it, it's, it's urban composition. So when you're putting together a higher density scheme, you, you, you work with architects, you work with urban designers, and you effectively don't want a monotonous um, urban situation you need these landmarks you need these buildings that create a sense of activity animation uh, and the other key thing as well is that with daylight sunlight which are you know coming into urban blocks you have a, a big situation where you need to get now you need to get daylight into courtyards you can't have these courtyards that are dark places so if i have an apartment that is facing into the courtyard i never see the sunlight so what we have to do is we have to drop the blocks that are facing the south so for example in the block with 19 stories the building on the southern edge of that site, it's an urban block, a typical what we would call donut block, but effectively it's a sort of square block. And the building on the southern side drops to two stories. So the sunlight can shine in to the, the courtyard and allow people who live in that block, even if they're in the interior of the courtyard, still to get sunlight. And that means what you do is you take the develop the volume of space that you would have had if that was an eight-story block and you put it on a higher element towards the north of the block which effectively doesn't create uh, you know which means that that's going to get sunlight so it's all about getting the same density you would get if you were building that as a flat six or eight story but managing to get the same density but with all of the apartments getting plenty of daylight and sunlight and then but how does it impact on all the other houses around so their sunlight and also for their visual aspect so two things. First of all, you've got to, you know, around in the master plan that we inherited from the city council, they had put seven-story blocks at the edge of the site. But at the edge of the site, you have houses that are two and three stories. So we said, you can't do that. You've got to drop. Our scheme has got to start off at three stories at the edge, go to four or five stories, and then slowly creep up. So by the time you get to the centre of the site, I mean, and we're talking in a site nine times the size of Crow Park, and you're talking about any of the tall buildings being you know, 100 metres away from any of the buildings, uh, the, the existing buildings. So one, absolutely no overshadowing. So even if you cast the shadow from the building, it's going to go nowhere near any of the existing buildings. And from a perception perspective, you know, we're sitting here in your kitchen looking out the window, and if I look 100 metres away, I wouldn't see anything. I mean, in fact, I don't, it's simply not going to be there. 
then it comes back to the quality of the architecture and it comes back to the quality of the, the architects and who we work with to break down the volumes. So the architects in that particular case, um, you know, worked very hard. And indeed, if you look at the planning documents, you'll see the crafting and the sculpting and probably 20, 30 iterations of the design of the tower to break down the volume. So the visuals on the skyline, uh, the perception as you look down streets, that it's a very well-crafted piece of architecture uh, that will fit into the urban environment. But going to 19 storeys, does that not increase the costs of the buildings enormously, which then transfers into the further cost on the lead to those who live there? I, I've heard that, but the evidence that we would see is not, not significantly, no. So you're, you add about 1% or 2% per floor once you go about, above eight storeys. So it's, it's very marginal. Now, once you go up to 50 storeys, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, of course you do. But if you're talking something going to 20, 25 storeys, you're adding about, over once, once you go above um, 10 storeys or so, you're, you're, it's 1% or 2% per, per floor. It's not that much that it's, it doesn't justify doing it. What size are the apartments going to be? So, the, the, I mean, it depends on the, the average apartment size. So we've obviously we have studios, one beds, two beds, uh, and three beds. And people speak about built-to-rent and built-to-sell built apartments. If you look at the codes, so first of all, First of all, let's explain the difference between those two and then benchmark them to European comparators. Uh, effectively, you have a standard size apartment that's been designed by the uh, Department of Housing, having done many benchmark studies across Europe. That standard apartment is about 11% higher than the average in Europe. So that's the first thing. If you're doing a build-to-rent apartment, you can just build 100% standard apartments. If you're doing a build-to-sell development, 50% of the apartments must be 10% higher than the standard size. And that's the difference. So effectively, you end up with 105% of the floor area of, of, for a build-to-sell development as you would for a build-to-rent development. If you take the player scheme, we're at about 108% of the standard size. So in fact, the aggregate of apartment size in the player's Bailey Gibson scheme is, is actually bigger than a traditional, a, a fully blown build-to-sell. And that came back to the architects. The architects, when they designed the scheme, made the case for larger apartments looking this way. They wanted the aspect to work in a particular way. So we worked with them rather than say, you know, squeeze the shoeboxes or like make it as tight as possible. We ran with the design that the architects had to make the spaces work better. And also from our own experience, laying out apartments for, you know, occupiers, do we have enough storage? Do we have enough uh, space for a buggy, your skateboard, your surfboard? Getting all those elements right in an apartment are, are absolutely critical. So by the time we would have taken a qualitative look at the architect's designs, it turns out they come out at about 108% of uh, you know, the standard size. And we just ran with that. You say studio apartments. Aren't studio apartments just a sort of a posh phrase for bedsits? Hey, again, it's very unfortunate that you say that because in many countries, by the way, people would be only thrilled to have a studio apartment in the centre of town, you know, that, that's their own place in a, in, a, in a scheme that has loads of amenities, be it common areas, uh, games rooms, etc. It, and it's seen as being a cost-effective way of, 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 you know, as you take your stepping stone to maybe ultimately to buying your own place. A studio apartment in London, for example, is 25 square metres. Same in Paris, same in Madrid. The minimum size for a studio apartment in Ireland is about 37, and in effect about 40 square metres is what we find out by the time we, we, we design the layout. So our space standard is exceptionally high. 40 square metres is, is a very large amount of space. Uh, indeed, many one-beds uh, are, 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 are that size. 
an interesting example would be, you probably know the Mespel estate there in, yes. uh, on Leeson Street. The average two-bed uh, apartment in there is 48 square metres. So, you know, people are not putting placards on the windows in the Mespel estate saying, I'm living in a shoebox. Uh, but they are two bedroom. And I think that's a lot of people look at the preponderance of one bedroom in a lot of the new apartment developments, not just your own, but all the various developers and saying, well, hold on, one bedroom isn't necessarily enough for couples. It means they can't start families there. And also getting back to what we were talking about earlier, the three two working week, if people are working from home, particularly during the pandemic, there was a sort of a kickback against one bedroom apartments because people, couples, found they were completely unsuitable for their needs when working from home. Why so many one bedroom apartments? Well, you raise a number of points there. First of all, the work from home, I think, is it's essential that apartment developments do have communal facilities and other space, you know, within the development for work from home. So I think it's... So why communal space? Because if it was communal space, they could be going into the office. The whole idea of working from home was uh, well, to have it, your it, own it, space isolated from other people uh, so I, I you suppose, wouldn't be picking up viruses. It's, it's got to be affordability. I mean, can you afford a, a Ford Fiesta or do you buy, you know, a Ford Sierra? It's that, I mean, let's be honest, that is the question. At the end of the day, development of apartments and construction is incredibly expensive. So it comes back to, you know, at the end of the day, it won't be built unless there's an economic return earned through a rent on on that unit. So people can afford a one bed or a studio or or a three bed, depending on the circumstances. But the key thing is that the amenity of living in that block, you know, your quality of life shouldn't be determined by the fact I can only afford a one bed. Uh, That's what the rent is. Uh, But I still need space to break out, to go to a gym to do stuff that should be in your in your block and i think the way planning is going now it's more and more becoming a prerequisite by the planners that these elements are there coming back to the the main question is why so many one beds as opposed to family size units all over the place well the, probably the most preeminent expert on this is someone like ronan Lyons in, in, in trinity college who basically said we don't need to ever build a family home again in dublin we are oversupplied to them we have too many what we're missing are the one beds, uh, you know, the one and two person units. Because if you look at the way demographics is going, is that effectively we have traditionally we built three bed semis or three, three bed houses all over the city. And we have so many of them. But what we're lacking for the, the actual demand that's there are the one and two person units. So if I was uh, a car salesman down here in Rat Mines and I had my car lot out there, you know, for next Saturday morning, and I put my cars out for sale, and I had my Puntos, my Clios, and I had a couple of Volvos up here, the customers that will walk into the, the, the car lot, 80% of them are going to be looking for the Clios and the Puntos. Yes, we'll get a few customers for the Volvos, uh, for sure, but I'm not going to have 80% Volvos, you know, estates sitting there for families if, if the customer base isn't there. So when it comes back to the decision to invest, to spend, for example, Something like Cherrywood, the apartments are building out there. I mean, the overall investment is close to six hundred million to build what we're building out there. To raise that capital, somebody would ask the question: You know, have you done any market analysis? Where are the customers? Show me the demographic makeup of the people that are going to rent here. And we have to look at that, and we have to supply for that market. Now, yes, we do have three beds. Uh, believe it or not, we're, we're, we have to build them for planning purposes, but there isn't a market for them. And they're the last to let, without any doubt, because there isn't a demand for them. In the same neighbourhood within the charity, there's any amount of three-bed, uh, four-bed houses available 
both to rent and to buy. And therefore, you know, the people generally don't look at an apartment as being the preference for a family home. They tend to look at uh, a, a, a traditional type of home. Okay, so let's just move away from the South Circular Road for a moment and down to Clonliffe Road near Crock yes. Park. And I think you've plans for something like 1,800 units there? I think it was 1,700. And now through the planning grant that we have, it's down to about 1,600 or so. Okay, and 15. major political opposition and campaigns against mm. that, led by the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, Correct. who I think has said, these apartments are not going to be for the people in the area. What do you say to her? Well, I... You know, the way I'd look at it is if you've got to look at it, you look at an area like Trumcondra and the broader area there, and you say, like, it's mostly larger houses uh, that and, and three-bed houses, four-bed houses, and also taller, bigger houses. And many of them have been converted, as you know, into bedsits, flats, etc., uh, rather than be purposed for family homes. What that area is, is missing to get it, the true mix of housing right to match the demographic profile of the people in the area is smaller apartments. So the, if you had to complement the existing housing stock in the area, what is needed is uh, smaller units, rental units, uh, and indeed apartments for sale as well, uh, to complement the housing stock and allow people to move out of what Ronan Lyons calls cramming within existing housing stock and free up the, the larger units for families uh, in the area. So. One other key point, uh, and indeed I made the point to, to Mary Lou as well, is that you have, if you look at the, the Docklands, right now there's about 20,000 jobs coming on stream, new jobs. Uh, and we've seen phenomenal growth. But if you actually look at the office blocks being built and the hirings that have been announced that just the people haven't arrived yet, there's about 20,000 people coming there. You have about 1,500 apartments coming on stream in the same time frame. So there's 18,500 people are going to show up in the Clonliffe or adjacent areas looking for housing. Uh, and by the way, a lot of them will be looking for one and two bedroom you know, units. It's going to be small enough units. Where are they going to go? What they're going to do is they're going to start knocking on those red brick houses and start outbidding uh, existing families and other people for those units. So if we don't supply the housing that's actually needed for the demographic growth, you're going to lead to a mismatch uh, of situations and, and, and basically uh, you're going to force up the, co- the cost of housing for everybody. How many of the apartments that you're building though between those developments, and we'll get to Cherrywood in a moment, how many of those are likely to be offered for sale? Or are they just going to be too expensive for people to be able to buy? Well, as things stand, they'd be too expensive. First of all, uh, uh, too expensive for people to buy, I, I think, for the most part, in any volume. Uh, and the, the, so... If you've our so business, why are they too expensive? The cons- development cost, the construction cost in particular, is so expensive to build an apartment. So our average apartment, just to build it, before we look at any profit, in somewhere like Cherrywood, is about four hundred and fifty grand, uh, and that is, is incredible. And by the way, land is probably about eight percent of that. It's not. Well, I was just about to ask you about that. Is that down to you overpaying for the no, land? No, not, not at all. You're saying that only eight percent of the cost of is the land. It's the land. Yeah. So to, if you look at apartment development historically in uh, both in Ireland and indeed internationally uh, land might be it, it, leaving aside Paris or London or Mayfair but if you look at normal situations land tends to be somewhere between 8 to 12 percent of the cost of, of the unit and at that you have what's called a release price of land so people will sell land if they're owners of land or they're hoarders of land they'll, they'll sell it if it's achieving that sort of percentage of the of the end value of the product Otherwise, the people will sit on the land. So if the land's worth nothing or it's worth 2% of the unit, people will just 
the nuns that own that convent, you know, would just sit on it and say, well, I'm not selling it. I'm going to wait till the land recovers in value and becomes an economic commodity. And at about 8 to 12% of the cost, it sells. And people like ourselves can buy it and then produce it. So the vast bulk of the cost is uh, due to construction costs. And if you go back to, I mean, you don't mind me digging a bit deep on this, but just to explain a, a little bit about why now versus when our parents, because people, people often say, well, hang on, our parents will have to buy apartments. And, you know, how can't, why can't we? And that's fully understandable. They bought houses. There weren't that many apartments around. But, but even, yeah, but I, I take the point. But a couple of different things. One is if you go back to 1977, which is the, when the CSO tracks um, labor costs and, and, and building materials costs uh, as separate items, in 1977, in today's money, a construction worker earned about 300 euros per week. In today's money. Now he's earning 900 euros per week. So the labour component, which is 40% of construction costs, is three times more expensive. In 1977, if we were building a three-bed semi, we just did a hollow block wall. We also opened the nine-inch block, you know, that you just put a bit of plaster on the inside and a bit of plaster on the outside. No insulation. And that was fine. And of course, it was damp. And, you know, they're, they're now desperate for, they're not great for our carbon footprint, but that was standard back then. If you look at building a, a block wall today, it's 400 millimeters thick. You've got 100 millimeters of an outside wall, be it brick. You've got 200 millimeters worth of insulation. You've got cavity barriers. And then you've got 100 millimeters again on the inside of, of more insulation completion, you know, your services, everything in, in that wall. So it's a much more complex. So if you look at the materials costs, it's about 40% more expensive to 1977. So as a, com- a commodity, it's just way more expensive relative to what it was back then. The other thing, of course, back in 1977 is you had interest deductibility on mortgages. And I, I even, I mean, I can think about my first house that I bought in 1989. I think I, my take-home pay was about 1200 a month. My mortgage was 800 pounds a month, punts as it was back then. But I got 400 of that back in tax uh, through to, to my actual, you know, mortgage payment was 400 out of my 1200 per month because I was getting 400 back in tax relief. So housing was way more affordable because it was way cheaper to build and you had the in, 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 interest deductibility against your, your, your income, which tax, which you don't have now. So right now for this generation, the product is way more expensive, um, and uh, you don't have the same, let's and say, subsidies that were there. And is there that could be done about that, given that we are now facing into inflation running at near to 10%, uh, presumably affecting construction? Mm-hmm. Because it does strike me, but all of these changes, does the government have a chance of achieving its objectives of reaching 35,000 new units a year per year over the next number of years? I think it would be a struggle because at the end of the day, there is no shortage of capital out there. Uh, and as we've seen before, there's no shortage. Labour will show up. You know, we're in the European Union, so there's a very free labour market. And people... Will it, will it? Because where are those people going to live? Isn't this the old catch-22 uh, that we had during the last building boom, that we were effectively building houses for the labourers coming here to build houses? You're right, but the, the market will find a solution. I mean, it, it, things will... It, it'll will, be, it? will the market always find a solution? It will, if it, if it can function. The, the challenge is that there's, a, as you say, is that we're at a point where the price point at which housing can be produced that people can buy it is almost too expensive so the market isn't there and look if you look at the large home builders they're doing a fantastic job in the the starter home market you know the Glenbay Cairn they're producing as much as they can and their order books are full but at a price point at a price point that's in the 300s you know once you start to go above 
400, you, you, you've lost many, many cost, potential customers. Um, and obviously, there are some successful schemes uh, where, where that works and that some builders can build at those price points, but that market is limited. So the challenge is how do we get the price point uh, for housing to a level which is um, workable for the average salary. Could the state step in and do it instead, given that the state might, for example, own its own land, which means your 8% is immediately not there. Uh, The the VAT would come back to it. Um, It wouldn't charge itself development levies. Could the state actually step in and as some uh, commentators are suggesting... You know, if you had a state building company, would it be able to do twenty or thirty thousand units per annum? Well, first of all, I think the state is stepping in. I think housing for all has a lot of elements in it that are subtle, but are actually once they start working, they'll start to happen. So, for example, the shared equity scheme, uh, the Cree Queen House scheme that's coming through, both of them are a recognition that the price point at which developers have to sell is too high relative to uh, the people's incomes. Capacity of people to pay. Exactly. On the other hand, what the state is realising is when we build a house or an apartment, roughly 35% of all the money that costs is tax. So we're taking the tax in and we're basically pocketing that money that, uh, and the person is, it's unaffordable because we're taking so much tax. So the shared equity scheme or the Creek Queenham, you might look at that as effectively the state taking the tax in and then lending it back or indeed gifting it back to the individual and saying, right, if these are units that were not going to be built otherwise, in other words, all of a sudden you launch a, an affordable purchase scheme under Cree Quina, or you launch a scheme that includes shared equity, you're building marginal units that were not going, the developer was not going to build because there was no market for them. So the tax that the government takes in during that, it would never have received. So effectively it's a recognition that we're taking too much tax for a certain cohort and we've got to give it back in some shape or form to make it affordable for people. So I think those schemes will work. I think you'll see a lot of negative, you know, I've seen already a lot of negative pushback well, about them. They're being portrayed as a bailout for the builders. But the builders are nothing from them. It just allows them to start new schemes uh, and start the next phase of a scheme or indeed do a block that they couldn't otherwise do or they'd have to wait until they rented that block and then do the next block. But actually this is opening up another market that is not currently open. So I would... At the end of the day, we need solutions, and we need to try these schemes, see do they work. And you know, if after a year or two they're making a difference, let people be the judge of them at that point. Let's come back to Cherrywood. We've gone around the houses, so yeah. to speak, before we get to Cherrywood, which is probably your biggest investment. Is it your biggest development, or would that be fair to say? It certainly is. To date, it has, it, it, it has been the largest investment we've done And here. you bought that, as you say, from NAM and the banks. It was a site assembled by Liam Carroll, Zoe Developments. So where are you at now at this stage with it? Because you have sold off parcels of land and others have started building on it. But what have you done yourself? So the first thing... Uh, when we acquired it, we bought both the business park and we bought uh, Greenfield land, effectively. The Lewis line, as you know, had already been put in uh, and it was there. 
uh, there was a master plan just had been just at that point of time as we bought it had been adopted indeed that's why the banks put it on the market because the, the SDZ strategic development zone had actually just been enacted so what we did twofold one was we had to take the business park tidy it up it was 30 percent vacant it had been unloved for six or seven years so we got the vacancy below 10 percent, and we sold that on to another company and that was part of our investment strategy with the land we had effectively uh, uh 400 acres out of an 800 acre overall holding within the sdz but our our land represented uh in terms of the parks and public and roads we were about 65 70% of all the public land that was needed to make that scheme work. And everybody else's land interlinked with our land. So many other landowners were landlocked. They couldn't get to the land unless we put the road in on our land. So effectively what we did is we put in the roads, about five and a half kilometers of roads, 83 acres of parks, and made all the other land plug and play. So other landowners could then link into... How expensive was all that? Very expensive, uh, in fact, initial outlay was probably about 60 million to actually put that infrastructure in place. So we put that in place because we realized at the end of the day, there's, there's no liquidity. There's nothing to be built here. Uh, we need to get the schools underway. We need to get everything underway if we were going to uh, enable housing to move so forward. I think a lot of people would listen to that and think, hold on, isn't the construction of roads and schools and stuff the job of the state rather than a private developer? Well, you know, in some cases it is. This uh, was on private land, uh, but w- which was ultimately going to become public land uh, because we had to, to you know, hand that land over to the, the, the council in due course. So it would be seen as you know, p- public investment, if you want, but on private land. But effectively, the state didn't have the money. The council didn't have the money to do this. So unless we were prepared to put that money in up front and get this underway, the land was going to remain landlocked and unusable. So it was a f- simple case of get the infrastructure in, then the land becomes liquid. So our strategy was to enable uh, everybody to get going in Cherrywood, put the infrastructure in, which has been in place, by the way, since about 2018. And then we sold land to two of the biggest home builders in the country, Cairn Homes and Quintain, who are now building housing you know, at quite a pace out there. And that, that the first occupants, actually, residents were moving in this weekend. But presumably the value of the land that you sold was increased by the fact that you would put the infrastructure in place. Well, that, that was an investment to get better value out of the sale of that land. Yeah, but that would have been our business play, plan, uh, sure. as it would have been for anybody. You, know, you would have known that if we ha- you know, we're going to buy at this price, we're going to add X and we're going to sell at Y. Yeah. And that was uh, always the case. I think it took us a lot longer uh, for various reasons than it, 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 we would have predicted. To get Why did it take much longer? Very complex planning system and you know, a, a lot of environmental rules that probably took a long time to work through, longer than we would have expected. Uh, but look, we, that's water under the bridge at this point in time. And, and those Cairn and Quintain have now built houses on They built houses. So I, I was, and what we did then is the town centre element of the, of the scheme. We brought in another investor called APG, which is a Dutch pension fund, and Heinz and APG are starting to build out the town centre. Uh, and we have about 1,400 units under construction there. Quintain, Cairn have about 350 units under construction. Are they building houses? They're building houses for, and, and some apartments, but mostly houses. So... This weekend, uh, about the first 220 apartments in Cherrywood Town Centre were occupied. And I went up to take a look and I was able to see people moving into the the Cairn homes as well. So moving in vans. So the first residents are moving into Cherrywood as we speak. Uh, So I would imagine by, let's say, September, you probably have 
six, seven hundred people living in Cherrywood. The, the first school, by the way, has opened in prefabs last year, and the first wing of the new purpose-built school will actually open in September. So, the, you know, the, so the whole thing is kicking into. Are you building that school? We're not. No, the no. state state is building that school. Okay, and how many additional housing units and apartments will be built between you and other developers in Cherrywood, and how long is it going to take? So overall, the plan, and there's a little bit, a little bit of flexibility, but let's say target around 10,000 units would, would be the target. So currently on site, between ourselves, Cairn, there's another developer called Seamus Neville, and Quintain, you're probably looking at maybe 3,000 units on site currently, uh, and, you know, the next phase of development will probably, you know, given the turmoil in the market that's currently there at the moment in terms of funding, etc., it'll probably start, you know, you'll see bit by bit. But I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, one and a half, two thousand units per annum uh, as a, on a consistent basis. So over five, six years, you'll see the, this, the whole scheme built out. But you mentioned turmoil in the markets. Would you be fearful that there's going to be a slowing up of money available to the builders. Oh, do we, absolutely. Sorry, that's, that's it's absolutely happened already. Even though it's not speculative development on the basis that you're not putting out there in the hope that people will buy. A lot of these are built-to-rent units. But isn't that almost a guaranteed income because of our demographics that there clearly is going to be the demand and people will pay up? So a couple of points there. Obviously, there's in Cherrywood, the most part of Cherrywood are built-to-sell. So most of them are homes being sold by, by home builders. And naturally, you, you'll see uh, a reluctance in business plans to say, well, what's happening with mortgage rates? How much are they going to go up? And how much will that affect liquidity? It's not a surefire that people can afford these units. So you will see a slightly more conservative approach. Instead of starting the next 20 units, they might start the next 10 units. You know, there'll just be a more conservative approach to see how the customers out there can absorb the higher in- interest costs. The same applies to ourselves building built-to-rent uh, product. We're going to face higher interest charges uh, and indeed the price that people will, uh, let's say that pension funds will require that the yields they will expect on these units will probably become higher relative because if government bonds shift up if interest rates goes up so the viability of the marginal unit will will drop off as well so there's no question uh, viability and cost you know and the cost of funding uh, has shifted in the last and by the way I'm talking the last two months uh, Exactly how much, I don't know. Uh, difficult to say at this point in time. But definitely, it, it, it will be a headwind for all developers over the next, uh, you know, nine, 12 months. Fundamental question for you, though. I should have possibly asked you this earlier when we were talking about build to rent. It seems that a lot of the objection that people have is that they feel that they have a legitimate expectation of being able to buy, but that there's a generation now has effectively been locked out of the market, whereas older people like us are in the fortunate position that we own our homes, that our children are saying like, well, even if we work hard to study hard, get good degrees or get good apprenticeships and good jobs and earn money, we're still not going to ever be able to afford to buy and then we're going to have to rent. And long-term, is renting not just dead money for those individuals, even if it's good for the investors who are providing the accommodation? Well, it's an interesting one. And uh, um, I was rereading Owen O'Brien's book, Home, there recently, which you probably read, which he yeah. traces back through the history of uh, housing development in Ireland and goes back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, when that exact same situation existed, when, in fact, uh, renting population, rental population of Ireland was probably 65, 70% of people rented homes. They couldn't afford to buy them. 
So the state decided that they would get involved, not building themselves directly or becoming contractors, because uh, I don't think that's a great idea, but providing subsidies. So the million pound scheme... Sorry, that is often forgotten, isn't it? A lot of people actually think that the state itself constructed the homes, no. but it actually contracted. And that's how companies like McInerney's and the rest of it became Correct. such prominent and profitable businesses. But effectively, the state subsidised, like Merino... Uh, Cabra, many of these schemes that are seen as now being you know, best-in-class examples of state-delivered schemes, they're absolutely delivered by the private sector, you know, efficiently, but based on massive subsidies. So the states subsidize the cost of them to the tune of anywhere between 40 to 60%, and then provided subsidized mortgages to the occupiers. So there was a recognition back in the 30s, 40s, that the state needed to do something to make housing affordable and obviously that changed, as, as you know, and, and we moved into the 70s. Uh, interest tax deductibility, which I discussed, became another way of doing it effectively. So basically you're saying to an occupant, if you take out a mortgage, you can offset the interest against your, your, your uh, income tax. And that made housing very affordable. So that effectively made housing affordable through initially massive direct subsidies by the state, followed by income tax deductibility. What's happened, and you know, we've just been asleep at the wheel here, is we've taken away all those subsidies, uh, and indeed there's a reluctance to you know, consider them again. And then we've pushed the cost of the product, the actual production cost of the product, through higher wages and through much higher building standards, beyond the point that people, you know, the average wage can reach it. And then we're saying, what's gone wrong here? Well, nothing's gone wrong. We just sleepwalked ourselves into this situation, which is, by the way, why I think... Uh, the housing for all strategy is is a solution that we need to try and make it work because one option is direct subsidies back again the government just starts writing checks and says right we pay the land development agency or somebody to go contract the private sector to build these units and we'll subsidize 40 percent of the cost and people can buy them for 60 percent of their production cost okay that's one way or the other way is the shared equity scheme which is probably more equitable because you know effectively you you get a discounted price on, on the unit but you have, uh, you know, potentially the option, you know, you don't never have to pay off the, the, the state share or you can pay it off over time if you want. Or indeed the Cree Queenham, which effectively is a grant uh, to, for apartments in urban areas to kickstart the uh, build to sell apartment market, which after Section 23 really hasn't existed. Section 23 was another way, by the way, of, 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 of providing grants. And you remember, I, mean, I remember going to Bolton Street back in the... And in the early 80s, there was no apartments city, city centre. There was derelict blocks all over. There was nothing until 1984-85 when Fianna Fáil brought in Section 23 and provided effectively a 40% capital subsidy for an apartment. So if I was an owner-occupier or indeed a private investor buying a Section 23 apartment, 40% of the capital cost was effectively subsidised by the government. Who brought it in? Because 84-85, the coalition government was in place. Fianna Fáil came back into power in 87. Uh, I can't tell you... Was, yeah, I'm just yeah, trying yeah, to think, we're using this out yeah. loud. Okay. Um, but so I think at the end of the day, we've got to go back to the mindset that Owner Brain identified in the 30s, 40s, which is that without capital subsidies uh, and you know, mobilising the private sector to efficiently deliver, you're not going to be able to provide that volume uh, of affordable housing at purchase price points, points that actually work for the wages that are out there today. If and when Sinn Féin comes into power and somebody like Owen O'Brien is housing minister, what's it going to mean for developers and investors like Heinz? 
being honest with you, I think there's a nervousness out there because we're uncertain. You certainly hear a lot of um, rhetoric, uh, more so in the Doyle and, and indeed, you, you, again, you hear in the media around uh, how investors aren't necessarily the solution. And one is nervous around that because at the end of the day, we need today uh, about 12 billion per annum uh, to build housing in Ireland. That's, you know, and that will probably grow to about 16 billion per annum. If you look at what the state can do in terms of they put about a billion billion four into direct building of housing and then if you look at what the irish banks and irish pension funds taking if you take if you take ireland the piggy bank and you shake it out we can probably come up with about three billion per annum in terms of finance to fund housing the rest of it has to be imported we have to borrow it from our european neighbors uh, you know from dutch pension funds german pension funds uh, that was if back in the Anglo days. That was done through. You remember the bond market, where uh, Anglo and Nationwide went out and issued bonds to the same investors, by the way, the German and Dutch guys. Except they bought bonds, and then that was relent through to uh, into the Irish market. Now, because the Irish banks are constrained in terms of what they can do with the balance sheet, we have a lot less Irish banks as well. Uh, effectively, what's happening now is that the role that those banks played issuing bonds to provide capital into the housing market is being supplanted by direct investment by uh, the PLCs, who are funded in turn by pension funds from abroad, or indeed people like ourselves who are acting on behalf of Dutch pension funds, German pension funds, putting the money in, into the ground here. So without attracting international and ideally institutional investment, by the way, as opposed to opportunistic, so long-term pension funds, insurance companies, more passive investors that have a lower uh, expectation on return. That's the capital we need. And we, if we don't tap that money, we don't have a housing industry. Uh, that's the reality. And what do you say then to people who complain that you get all the tax breaks which aren't available to Irish investors? I, I think it's totally unfair and actually a misrepresentation of the facts. If you look at... Um, you know, what's called a collective investment vehicle, which is how, when you aggregate lots of smaller investors together. Uh, that vehicle is not taxed uh, per se. Uh, and in fact, it, it actually does pay tax uh, through what's called withholding tax. And then the investors pay top-up tax when they get it. But the agenda is that if you, have, if you don't have a collective investment vehicle, you can't aggregate lots of capital together. It, it, it comes back to the single individual having to take a big bet. So you're relying on high net worth individuals to provide all our housing in Ireland, you know, who actually have a big... But can't the state do it instead? You're just saying the state doesn't have access to enough resources, even with the booming economy we have. State has a limit. I mean, obviously there are pressures on the state's budget, as you know, left, right and centre. Uh, it has decided how much capital it's allocating to housing, but also, you know, and having decided, I mean, and it could, by the way, the state could double its investment in housing tomorrow morning, but there's still a massive gap that has to be provided by the capital markets, uh, you know, external capital markets. But if you look at taxes, so for example, if I'm building an apartment block uh, out in Cherrywood, for example, if you look at the taxes that have to be paid, stamp duty, VAT, and then once it's built, you're paying profit tax on the rents. So stamp duty and VAT represent about, uh, and, and levies represent about 20% of the capital cost of building that apartment block. So if the apartment block costs 100, 20 goes to the government straight up front. So that's being paid during construction. The VAT is paid. It's not, we don't get any VAT back. It all goes to the government. It's paid up front. 
So the government and development levies as well to the development council. Development levies, yeah. So between development levies, VAT, and and stamp duty, and then you effectively end up passing that on to the buyer or to the renter, don't you? Well, That's it, what yeah, increases it, the prices. Yeah, in fact, there's nothing we can do about that. The VAT has to be paid, so it's it's capitalising the cost up front. So the government, but the government gets a check for twenty if we spend a hundred building that unit. Let's say my rent on that hundred is four per annum, so I'm get, now getting four million in rent, for example. Obviously, I have expenses to run that building, so I might get a net three uh, out of that. And I would have to pay, then taxes have to be paid on that. So if I'm in a collective investment vehicle, as I'm paying that money out to the investors, there's 25% withholding tax paid. This, the minute that le- any check leaves and, and goes distributed out to the investor, and then depending on who the investor is, if it's me personally, when I get my tax bill at the end of the year, I have to pay another 25% on top of that. So my effective tax bill on that was that my rent was 50% of my, you know, my, my normal marginal tax. If I'm a, a pension fund, a Dutch pension fund, obviously I get the tax benefit that you don't pay, you know, they get it, they're neutral on tax. But that's no different to the Irish pensioners that are investing all across Europe and getting the reciprocal benefits. So Irish pension funds, private pension funds have about 190 billion invested across Europe on very reciprocal arrangements. So we're part of a capital market, if you want, uh, that is Europe. And therefore, you know, there's a lot of taxes. But the bottom point line is huge amounts of taxes are paid. Pension funds obviously defer the tax liability. But then Irish, insofar as we're bringing pension funds into Ireland from abroad, Irish pension funds are investing abroad on behalf of Irish pensioners getting the same reciprocal benefits. Okay, let's talk about Russia briefly, (laughs) because uh, you lived there for was five and a half years during the 1990s. Correct. How did you end up in Russia? So I, I, funny, I'd I'd lived in Paris for a number of years post uh, having left college. I came back here, worked actually, believe it or not, originally on the original master plan for the Grand Canal docks back in 1989, which was a very enjoyable thing to do. But actually, I was keen to travel again. And as you remember, the Iron Curtain had just come down. Uh, the opportunity arose. I, I actually planned to go back to business school, but uh, and I'd taken out my first mortgage at that point in time. So between the prospect of paying college fees again and then paying mortgage, and I think my interest rate was 17% for about six months. So I was you know, under huge financial pressure. Uh, sleepless nights wondering how can I pay my mortgage? How am I going to cope with all this? Uh, I was offered a job in Russia to go out and build an office block. And I said, okay, that makes sense because I'll be, you know, I'd be able to earn a much, much higher salary than I was uh, here in Ireland. And I'd be able to pay the mortgage and potentially save for college. And that was the opportunity. Um, it turned out to be a fantastic experience. Uh, it was a country in massive transition. Uh, the, the, the Iron Curtain had come down. Russia had just declared independence uh, from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was breaking up. Uh, it was very much uh, starting to say, well, where do we go from now? And we should become Western orientated. And I was think there was a, a big program at the time by the EU called TACUS, which was technical assistance to the CIS, as you know, Soviet Union. And there was an awful lot of advisors in from the EU and the US helping them build a banking system, helping them set up the stock market. All these things had to be done from scratch. Uh, and there was a huge appetite uh, in Russia at that point in time to learn from, integrate, and, and develop a Western orientation. As we all know, that all subsequently changed. But back then, that was the uh, the direction of travel. 
fascinating. How, how did you find the people there? I mean, when you look at what's happening now and suddenly Russia is regarded as a pariah state because of what's happening in Ukraine, how did you get on with the people? How did you find the country? Well, the country is absolutely massive. It's 11 time zones. I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, the scale of the country. And also the, the, the peoples, the peoples, you know, there's a huge variety of people in, 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 even within Russia, not to mind the former Soviet Union. So as you go into these regions, it really is a, a, a really massive country with many different peoples in it. If you take Moscow, St. Petersburg, they're probably, you know, they, they feel quite Western. Uh, they're big, complex, cosmopolitan cities with opera, ballet, you know, all, all of the sort of things that you would, in fact, you know, in many ways, may, way more sophisticated than Dublin in terms of the, the, the cultural life that's there. So, you know, again, I think the Russians used to call it the intelligentsia, you know, but, but there's a very strong cultural life in these cities uh, and very amenable, pleasant people. I, I think what's happened in recent years, you know, obviously that the state has become quite authoritarian, to say the least. And I think it's it's very intimidating for many of those people. I think I'm in touch with a number of people I was friends with way back then, and they, I, I think they struggle. They certainly, even in their communications with me, they can't openly express uh, their thoughts and feelings, you know, for worried that they might be eavesdropped on. Did you learn the language over there? A little bit. Uh, you know, when I lived in France, I, I really made a big effort in Russia. What I found, being honest with you, was that the very smart Russian people who I worked around me all spoke fluent English. So it became more efficient and easier for me to recruit people who spoke fluent English and allow them to do most of the interaction with the, the state or the local authorities uh, rather than me personally learning the language. And was it as an architect you were working at that stage? No, at that point in time, I'd moved into development. So I'd, I'd sort of switched gears, so to speak, in terms of my career. And did you build anything of significance in Moscow? Yes, so you know the first building I built was for a bit uh, a, a Russian bank called Stolichny Bank, which means Premier Bank. You've all heard of Stolichny Vodka, so uh, but it was their HQ, and that was uh, on Sadovnitskaya na Brezhna, uh, which is sort of uh, one of the main embankments in, in Moscow. Um, subsequently, did a number of HQs for people like Exxon, the IMF, uh, even. Uh, managed a project to do the European Union Embassy uh, back then. And the largest project I did was actually with Heinz, because uh, I joined Heinz then in, in Moscow and set up their development division out there, was a, a very large rental housing project, which included you know, a big campus that included the Anglo-American schools. So um, large enough, at the time that was the largest sort of Western uh, investment uh, in Russian real estate. Was it harder or easier to get things done in Russia than it is back here in Ireland? I, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I think, um, being honest with you, back then, and this is sort of you know mid-90s, I think Russian people were clambering for and very keen to see how uh, things worked in the West. They'd just come out of the, you know, the Soviet Union uh, and the sort of five-year plans and therefore, they were very open to and, and embraced seeing, you know, more efficient procurement or ideas around innovation, around how, how we build things. Um, that probably subsequently changed. But uh, again, my experience back then was, despite the difficulties, people were open to doing things. I, I Being honest with you, I think things here are, you know, bureaucracy can be a challenge at times. I think people here are, the system is set up um, in theory to, you know, be efficient and transparent, but 
Uh, if you look at the, you know, I think Roland Lyons did a fantastic article in the Currency, uh, the, you know, last week around how things like the, the HNDA, the Housing Needs Demand Assessment, is putting a cap on the housing output in Dublin, which is, you know, intuitively absolutely the wrong thing uh, to do. But we, bureaucracy, maybe, and being politically correct, has is getting in the way of. But is that the civil the servants, way. public servants, or is that the politicians? Because it seems that most of the objections to developments, and sometimes objections are required, because sometimes maybe there are developers who chance their arms a bit on what they do. But have we developed a culture in this country where? The politicians on the one hand are demanding additional housing and yet on the other hand are to the forefront in saying, well, not here, it has to be somewhere else. Without mentioning any specific uh, site, I think that's a fair comment. I, mean, I think it's a fair observation uh, for sure. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we need to see a much greater focus on, on, on delivery of housing. I mean, for, for, for example, the planning framework in Ireland starts with the national planning framework which is the the primary document which basically says this is the, the island of ireland here's the amount of people we have here's how we should distribute them and here's how we should manage our infrastructure that's the number one fundamental document then you get to the regional uh, it breaks into three regions and you say with as a subset here's how the region should work so eastern region and midlands region, you know dublin drogheda bray you know here's how each of these components work and then you have the local development plan which is the city plan or whatever Many people believe the city plan is the primary document and it's, a, it's an ab abdication of democracy if that document isn't the guiding document. But actually, the way planning is set up in Ireland is you start from the top and, and it comes down and the local plan is supposed to you know, fine-tune the detail of the national... But aren't we having a situation where a lot of the local plans are present and the likes of Meath and Kildare are all putting caps on the amount of new development, dezoning land, so that while we actually have a housing crisis and a booming uh, demographic situation, particularly in the east coast of the country, our planning is actually effectively stopping new development, which is only going to make the price of existing zone land and the developments a lot more expensive. I think that's correct. So I think there's a lot of positive things in the national planning framework. I think the HNDA, which is the Housing Needs Demand Assessment, was done incorrectly. And that's, I, I think, when it was, it's, it's a system we imported from Scotland. And in Scotland, the housing needs demand assessment was set as a minimum target. And it was, you must build this amount of houses, otherwise we're going to face a housing crisis. Prices are going to go up. But we've said, no, that's the maximum you need to build uh, within any given particular development plan cycle. And I think, and I suppose the point I was making is that we should not be, you know, somebody, somebody should wake up and say, hey, we got that wrong, guys. We need to change it quickly and, and let the market move on and free up developers who are having their land dezoned and let them build more housing, which ultimately will help affordability. So um, maybe that's, uh, you know, one of the things I experienced in Russia was uh, they were prepared, I wouldn't say break the rules, but prepared to move along and get the, recognize that investment, uh, had, they needed it badly. They needed it so badly back then. And there was a, a willingness to try, experiment, move forward. Uh, and again, again, coming back to the, the government's housing for all strategy, there's ideas in there that we just need to embrace, try them. Now, after two years, if they don't work, you know, so be it. But going back to the 30s and 40s, when the government did break the rules and they went out and subsidized housing and they enabled uh, developers to get on and build things and, and made it happen, we saw results. So we have to have a little bit of that ambition again and not be, let's say, uh, nervous about maybe making a mistake and seeing did it work and, and, and fine-tuning it if it's not working correctly. 
And that was the latest episode of Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by NG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at ng.ie and recharge your soul. We hope that you've enjoyed Brian Moran, and there are lots of other previous editions of Magnified with Matt Cooper for you to enjoy at the Go Loud podcast app or wherever it is you get your podcasts. So until the next time, thanks for listening. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Go ahead.